Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. You're listening to the Life as Leadership podcast. Are you looking for motivation and encouragement on your path to becoming a better leader? If so, you've come to the right place. Keep listening to find a community of leaders committed to learning and taking action to improve their world. The Life as Leadership podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. Here's your host, Josh Friedemann. My guess is that you have some form of a to-do list. You might be one of the old-fashioned or tactile types of people who likes to keep that pen and paper feel. You may be the type of person who's transitioned digitally, or you might be that type of person who just likes to try to keep everything straight in their head. If you are that third group of people, I have respect, but how do you do it? However... We have a guest today who's going to be talking about how there are only three things that a leader really needs to be doing. Now, you might be asking yourself right now, is this a purposefully subversive take or do I really need to be rethinking what I'm doing? Only you can be the judge of that. But first, let our guest make his case. And we're going to get to a little bit more about him in just a second. But first... It's great when you have time to listen to podcasts, but sometimes you just need to get straight to the facts. And that's why we've put together the Leadership Action List. It's a year's worth of weekly action steps to improve your leadership. If you want to be a noticeably different leader in one year, this simple but effective resource is for you. Download this list for free at leadershipactionlist.com. Once again, for an entire year of weekly leadership development, go to leadershipactionlist.com. Our guest today is the Managing Director of Trinity Blue, a consultancy whose clients seek to achieve greater clarity, focus, and results from within the C-suite. A lawyer by training, a venture capitalist by career, and a family man by choice, he has a large following in C-suites around the country. He's the author of A CEO Does Only Three Things, Finding Your Focus in the C-Suite. Here is Trey Taylor. Welcome to the podcast. Josh, thanks so much for having me. Good to be with you. So I like to start off every single interview with a few questions that help us to get to know you better as a leader and give us some insight for our own lives. Are you ready for these? Yeah, of course. What is some lesson, saying, or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? I think the, uh, the best lessons or experiences that I've taken is watching other people do the job and being an active observer and a self-referencer and saying, that's how they do it. Can I do it that way? Should I do it a different way? What's the best way for me to find my leadership track? And so early in my career, I was fortunate enough to sort of always be the youngest guy in the room, always have a corner seat and watch uh, great CEOs do what they did. So I was very early um, on when, uh, when WebMD was first formed under a different corporate name and uh, was with them when they went through uh, you know, the massive expansion of growth where it became really a household word. And I was able to watch the, the founder who was very young, 28 or 29 years old at that point, and watch him go through his CEO journey. I then joined other publicly traded companies and would often be in the C-suite and be able to pay attention to the way that people handled problems or handled opportunities and, 
you know, that sort of thing. And I was just sort of a keen observer of that. I was a student of the game from that standpoint. And then, you know, when I got my own role as CEO, I, I rely back on those lessons quite frequently. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is? A leader is people-focused, culture-focused, and numbers-focused. I see some foreshadowing there, huh? <laughs> I'm cheating a little bit. I'm trying not to, but I'm cheating a little bit. That's, there, that's yeah. all right. We're going to get into a little bit more about those three items later in the interview. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? This is the magic question that I use all the time. I have two of them, but this is the best one that I use all the time. And it's something that I've implemented in the past uh, probably nine months. And it's really changed the quality of decision making I do every day. I keep it on an index card right in front of my monitor. And instead of me rushing into solution mode, which I want to do from time to time, uh, I've taken a pause now and I say to anyone who will listen, what would you do in my situation? And the quality of advice that people give you when they put themselves in your seat is infinitely better than what they give you when they are a guru or just, you know, sort of shouting orders at you. What's a book that you would recommend to leaders? I love the book Mastery by Robert Greene. I think it shows us that there is a definitive path uh, and sort of a secret model behind the workings of the world of how people become masters of information and their craft. And uh, it's, it's a gift book that I probably gifted 300 times in my career. So I love that book. If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would that thing be? For me, I have a, uh, a pre-printed pad on my desk with the three major things that I want to accomplish every single day. And this has nothing to do with a task list. These are the three highest level goals for me, my culture, my people, and my numbers. And I keep a running track every day of what I do to advance that football in each one of those verticals. And I think that makes me a much better leader because of it. And finally, we have our arbitrary but insightful question, which is this. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? I think it is better to ask why. Because in asking why, you can find out from people how they are orienting daily tasks uh, with an internal sense of purpose. Well, Trey, we are here today to talk about your recently released book, A CEO Does Only Three Things, Finding Your Focus in the C-Suite. And right now on Amazon, while we are recording this interview, you are currently a number one bestseller. Congratulations there. Could you share with us a little bit about this book and what you're looking to accomplish, the change you're looking to make with this book? Yeah, so I wrote the book because it, it came down to me that the CEO is the only job in the company that doesn't have a job description. And when I came to my CEO role, I came through the lens of tragedy. So my father had passed away at a very early age. He had always encouraged me not to do the business that he did. But when he passed away, it was a surprise. And we didn't have a succession plan in place that was going to keep the business together and growing at the trajectory that he had put together. And so I found myself in a seat that I wasn't prepared for at all. And the thing that I needed didn't exist. The CEO handbook, the job description, you know, that sort of um, literary device, it just wasn't out there. There wasn't a website for it or anything, you know, of that nature. And so uh, a couple of years ago, I heard a speaker at a conference uh, who spoke right after me. And she said, our only moral imperative 
is to be the person we needed when we were younger. And that really sat on my shoulders. And I thought about that for a long time. And at, at the end of the day, I came back and said, you know, what younger Trey needed was a handbook for how to get this done and get it done right. Because, uh, you know, I tried to feel it out. I tried to use the experiences and advice of others. But but this is what it came down to, that the greatest mentors showed me that this is what good CEOs and great CEOs do. So that's why I wrote the book. So I want to get into a little bit more about the book in just a second. But just out of curiosity, as far as your father's desires of you not getting into the business or whatever the, the nuances were there, was it more directing you away from an industry or from that leadership position? Our, our family is the typical success story in America where the first generation comes out of extreme poverty and hustles and really works hard to build something. The second generation comes in and tries to professionalize what was built and extend it through systems and processes and have it be even bigger and more professional than it was. And then typically, unfortunately, the story is the third generation comes in and runs it into the ground. Um, so my dad basically said to me, look, don't do what I do for a living. Go and, and become a professional so that your skill set is in demand and clients can't fire you, you fire the client. And so, you know, typically the third generation is often pushed to be doctors and lawyers and accountants and that sort of profession uh, when you're born out of that entrepreneurial genealogy, if you will. So that was his biggest point was to go and do something that isn't entrepreneurial. Go get a career where you stay somewhere for 45 years and you don't worry about your income going up or down based on the quality and volume of your sales. So who was it that you needed when you were younger? You said you've written this book so that people who are where you are kind of have that handbook that you wish you had had. Who was it that you needed when you entered into that CEO position or into the C-suite in general? So thankfully, I have a belief that life provides you teachers when you're ready to learn. There's an old Zen saying that says something similar to that. And so I was very blessed at periods in my life where mentors would emerge and teach me the lesson that I needed to know at that point. What I really would have liked to have had is a, is a you know, sort of a guidebook or a map or an atlas up front saying, you know, at this point, you're going to learn this lesson. And at this point, you're going to learn this lesson. And so that's really what I tried to do with the book. But my mentors coming in, you know, uh, up front, I had a lot of mentors willing to teach me the business that I had never learned. And that helped me for the first two to three years of the career. After that, I had people coming in teaching me that it is different to be a business owner than to be a producer in your own business for whatever your business is. And that was a mindset shift that I had to take. And then the third, of course, was figuring out what that looked like as a CEO, which was, you know, I took to be one step higher than, than just the owner of the business asking other people to do things. It was much more of a leadership-oriented position. What does it take in your mind to be a great CEO? So uh, I talk a lot about this, uh, but the difference between a good CEO and a great CEO. And in my mind and in my experience and watching other people, and this applies to all leaders, great CEOs or great leaders have the ability to precept gifts in others. What do I mean by that? They can see gifts in others before those people can see that in themselves. And when I talk about this from the stage, I go through an exercise where I ask people to think in their own lives, who saw something in you before you saw it in yourself? And, and people get teary-eyed immediately, remembering 
their stories of who was then. It was mom who saw that I was a great leader before I did or something of that nature. For my own life, it was Madeline Brownlee, my seventh grade algebra teacher and the headmaster of our school. And she held me to a very high moral standard, and she called out gifts from inside of me that I had no idea were there. Uh, it's not enough to precept the gifts. You have to do what Miss Brownlee did, which is to call them out. And I call that process evocation. It's from the Latin ex voca, to call from within. And so, you know, seeing gifts in somebody else but not calling them out is not full and perfect leadership. So you have to put those two things together, precept and evoke. And I don't think that there's a lot of training that needs to go into that, Josh. I think we all are gifted with the ability to to take a pause, to take a beat, look at, you know, look at what you see that other people are good at and they could be really good at if they focused on it, if they had heart behind it, if they put emotions to fuel it and that sort of thing. And then simply to say to them, to acknowledge it, you are really good at this thing and you should put more effort and desire behind it. In doing those two things, that's what we remember about the leaders who have touched our lives forever. So if people have really been drawn to that idea, that idea of seeing gifts in other people before they see it and then calling it out, you've kind of shared this, but what would you recommend to people who want to hone that skill and make that something that they make a a key part of their life? So easy. Start today and practice. So let's go ahead and go to the three pillars of what a CEO does. The title of your book, once again, is A CEO Only Does Three Things. You have these three pillars. Could you break them down? You've already teased them in your answers before we started the interview. Could you tease them out a little bit more for us? Yeah, sure. So the answer to the question is a CEO only does three things, culture, people, and numbers. And as soon as the words leave my mouth, the listener says, but wait a minute, I'm the CEO and I do way more stuff than that. And of course, I understand that we all have to-do lists that need to get done. It's a core principle of the book that we are probably doing things that we're paying other people to do, and they would do it better if we just let them do it. So part of my substitution exercise here is maybe you should stop doing some things that aren't really your business to do and start doing the things that are sort of being ignored on a uh, highly conscious level by most CEOs. And those things are culture, people, and numbers. And what I mean by that is um, that a CEO is, uh, is privileged to see the organization from a different perspective than any other person in the company, C-suite level or below. And the reason is, is because they live with the ultimate accountability for the success of the business. And that will give you a different prescription in your glasses when you're looking at the business. You know, each of these three things has to start with the CEO determining the agenda for that specific vertical. So in culture, for example, uh, it isn't solely the CEO's job to build out the culture of an organization. That's an impossibility. But to set the agenda and to, and to provide the guiding light for this is what we want our culture to look like. It's my belief that culture shows up in the behaviors of your people. And so determining in advance what behaviors you want to see in the people that are working in this ethical environment that you create is the job of the CEO because there's no one else who can do it because no one else has the ultimate accountability or the perspective necessary in the front. When it comes to culture and people, it seems like those, and you've spoken to this a little bit already, but it seems like those are very interrelated. How, how do you parse those out, or is it appropriate that they're that interconnected? 
Yeah. So my point in the book is that all three of them are uh, inextricably linked together. So it doesn't do you any good to have a culture if you have no people working in the culture. It doesn't do you any good if you have culture and people, but they're not achieving the numbers uh, that make your business possible. And so uh, I don't like to break them out. I don't like to prioritize them because they are each important in their own way and in that and in their own time as well. You know, that's just the way that I sort of think about it is that they're each just as important as another. So you've spoken to culture and people a little bit. Could you break down what you mean by numbers? Is this a matter of the balance sheet, revenue, things like that? Or would you would you broaden it out a little bit? Yeah. So I like the CEO to adopt the mindset that it is his or her job to set the agenda around what the organization will accomplish. And those things should be obviously measured measured and measurable in quality metrics and numbers. Does the CEO have to report those numbers? Does he have to produce you know, mechanisms by which they are true or not true? No, I think those are delegated tasks. But to stand up before the organization, which I do in, you know, at the end of January every year and say, these are the goals that we will strive for uh, for the coming 12 months. That is uh, something that really only the CEO can do. And then we over-communicate progress or lack thereof uh, on a very frequent basis so that everyone knows which way the train is going, how fast it's moving, and uh, what, what work needs to be done. So it's all about mindset and agenda setting. From your experience working with people in the C-suite, how many people do you think focus just on these three things? Is that, is that fairly popular when you get up to the top of an organization or is this something that you're looking to change within the, the culture of top leadership throughout the country and the world? I think that every organization struggles with the concept of perspective. Should I be looking at the trees or the forest? And the answer, of course, is both at the right time when your actions can have the greatest impact. And so the the little trick that I used that I shared earlier was, you know, for each of my clients, I give them a printed pad and it says culture people in numbers, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And I have them before they open their inbox for the day, I have them take some action to improve the culture of the organization, some action to improve the people uh, and some action to improve the numbers. One thing each morning before you open your inbox and the daily demands of to-do lists comes marching through. And I'm doing that because I want CEOs to focus at least for part of the day on something that cannot be accomplished that day. Let's work a little bit on the eternal before we get to the mundane. And if we do that, then the overall quality of the business uh, improves, uh, I'll say over time, but it improves rapidly over time when we begin to, uh, to focus on those things that, that really matter, that really mean something, that give purpose to our work, that's the best way to uh, fight burnout in executives. And this country is just rife with executive burnout. These are the kinds of things that we have to do for our clients. From your experience working with leaders, what would you say are the things that they should most rapidly be looking at getting rid of or be looking at getting rid of most rapidly in their day-to-day work? Yeah, so for for all of the C-level executives that I coach, uh, we do several different exercises. Number one is we do an absolute brain dump. It takes usually three and a half days to go through a complete inventory of every uh, open loop in their lives. 
And, and we do it on a personal and a business basis. Because if your wife has nagged you about fixing the screen door on the back porch for the last three years, and you still haven't done it, that is an open loop that your subconscious holds on to. And it, it requires a minuscule amount, but still an amount of energy to care about that. And so we do this, uh, this really impressive, uh, it comes from David Allen from Getting Things Done, uh, from that methodology, but we do this really impressive brain dump where we get all of that. We fill up legal pads with all these open loops and we work the executive through those open loops to figure out which of them can be closed, which of them should just be deleted because they're never going to be done and which can be delegated. And so that really frees up a ton of mental real estate. That's the first thing that we work with executives to do. Number two, and it's a byproduct of this process, is we start to teach and coach the executive to look at how much work they are doing that is more properly delegated to other people. This is a recurring theme in my work because we see this as the number one problem that feeds executive burnout. And that burnout comes because we work off purpose. So if I hire someone to do a job and I want to help them do a good job, so I, I start by training them. And then, you know, if they fall short a little bit, maybe I step in and take it over and show them how it's done. But really what happens is over a long period of time, they don't ever get to do the work all by themselves so that they can stand or fall based on the merits of what they produce. And what really is happening there is we're keeping our hands on things that really are none of our business any longer. And so that I really work hard with executives to get them to take the monkey off their back, put it on the back of the employee who has the ultimate accountability for the success of the project and, and see you know, what results uh, can be done there. Sometimes the results aren't as good, but uh, what we normally find is that the person who was hired to do the job is better than the executive in doing the job anyway, because that's their sole focus. And uh, we, we, we release a lot of energy in doing that. We restore a lot of burnt out executives by doing that. So for the leader of an organization who reads this book, how long would you expect it would take for them to be able to transform what they're currently doing into these three things and delegate or get rid of the other stuff in their lives that aren't helping them to work on purpose? Yeah, I think you can easily implement programs in each of the three verticals You know, while you're reading the book, which let's assume it takes a month to knock out a couple of pages a day on that. And then it, it is a matter of perfecting what you've started. And so, you know, I wrote the book and I'm still practicing to get perfect at each of these things. Uh, you know, I think that we have one of the highest functioning cultures that I've ever, uh, that I've ever seen. I think we are, uh, continue to improve our hiring processes to bring the right people in. And I think we continue to refine our numbers, but I don't expect to ever reach perfection on any of those uh, three things. So there's so many things from the book that we probably could have talked about today, and yet we aren't able to cover that in a 25-minute interview. What is something that you would like to leave the listeners with, whether it's something that we've already talked about that you'd like to reiterate or something we just haven't been able to address yet at all? Yeah, I think the feedback that I get the most often, and we did talk about it, is uh, the life-changing stuff in the book exists in the mundane. It's the way that we treat each other. It's the way that we decide to view other people. The most powerful model in that is understanding that we ourselves and everyone else that we come across are created in three different dimensions, an intellectual dimension, an emotional dimension, and what I call the identificational dimension. 
it's where the identity is held. And until you manage and love people in your life, be that at family, at work, wherever it happens to be, even complete strangers, in a way that addresses their intellectual capabilities at the level that they can take it in, at the emotional level that they can take it in, and at the idea that uh, you can speak to someone's identity in the way that we talked about great leaders do, this is the model that really unleashes a lot of creative power, and it really de-escalates a lot of tension uh, amongst people. When you sort of forgive the guy next to you because maybe his intellect isn't as sharp as you are, maybe his emotional intelligence is higher than yours is, or whatever it happens to be, when we begin to see each other as, as people created in that same image, you know, that's one of the things that I absolutely love touching people's lives with. Well, Trey, if people have enjoyed what they've heard from you today, where would you like them to go to find out more about you, your new book, and the work that you do? Yeah, Josh, even if they haven't enjoyed it, I would still appreciate them checking it out on Amazon.com. That's where the book is, of course, and Barnes & Noble. And anywhere you buy books, you can find that book. Uh, A CEO only does three things, finding your focus in the C-suite. And uh, if you're interested in any executive coaching or consulting services that we provide, you can find those at www trinity-blue.com. Trey, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, always uh, good to speak with you, Josh. Thanks for having me. Once again, if you'd like to connect with Trey, you can go to his website at trinity-blue.com. Now, let's go ahead and get to today's three key takeaways. The first one is this. The difference between good leaders and great leaders is that a great leader can see the gifts in others before they see them in themselves. And when you can see something in someone else before they see it, it's your responsibility to then call out that gift. That is the mark of a great leader. The second key takeaway is this. In all three areas of people, culture, and numbers, over-communicate progress or lack thereof so that everyone knows what needs to be done. Be sure that you're clearly communicating with your team what's happening or what's not happening so that these three areas that are your responsibility as a leader are actually being fulfilled in the ways that you and others on your team or in your organization have planned for them to develop. And the final key takeaway is this, work on purpose, not off purpose. Look at how much work you're doing that's more properly delegated to others. If it's not on purpose of people, culture, and numbers, it's off purpose. Find other people who are more well-fitted or more well-positioned to do that other work. Now, one thing to help you work more on purpose, especially when it comes to people and culture, is the leadership action list. This is a year's worth of weekly leadership development that you can use for yourself, but also for your leadership team. If you want to help those on your team become better leaders over the course of an entire year, the leadership action list is a great way to do that. You can download the leadership action list for free at leadershipactionlist.com. One thing that I don't always talk about is that this will also sign you up for a weekly email across an entire year where every single week on Monday morning, you're going to get an email to your inbox that has one of these areas for you to be growing in that particular week. Once again, the Leadership Action List at leadershipactionlist.com. Until next time, keep living and leading well. Well, 
Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist... It feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon. And until then, keep living and leading well.